You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Here we are in the month of July. How many of you are aware it's already July? Yes, sir. Almost the middle of the summer. And um, our team has actually scheduled a speaking schedule all the way into September. I wanted to let you know next week, Adam Russell from the Campbellsville Vineyard is going to be here, which is, uh, he's really good. And in August, Ted Kim from the Chicago Vineyard is coming, and he's uh, amazing. And um, then I have a friend who's moved to Charlotte named Alan Platt, and he's the senior leader of a church network of between 30 and 40,000 people. And he's come to Charlotte to plant a church, and it's kicking off here in September. But uh, when he got to town, he wanted to know me, which I was surprised by. So we've become great friends. And he's an amazing, amazing man, and he wanted to come. So we have him in September. Then I'll be speaking. John Mark will be speaking. We have some folks from the congregation so I think we've got um, a sort of unique season here where we'll hear, um, honestly, some amazing people with stuff worth listening to. So I am so happy to tell you this morning, we have Thomas Torrey, and we are in the midst of a, yeah, give it up, 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 up. We cheer for everybody but the power company here at Queen City Church, but uh, we're in the middle of a spiritual formation series we've called The Summer of Story, and we're exploring the ways that stories shape us, how our inner narrative really does determine the kind of people, the kind of person we become. And so Thomas Torrey is speaking, as I said, and he is what I would call an accomplished storyteller as a full-time filmmaker. He's currently completing his third feature film. He's doing it right here in town, which happens to feature our own Stephen Williams and John Mark McMillan. So I'm sure that's going to be very interesting to watch. I have known his wife, Amanda, since she was just a little girl. Robin and Sandra Brinkley, her parents were have been all these years great friends, and Amanda and my children grew up together. They've got three kids, and they're here today. So, also, the Tories were part of our initial launch here, our founding class twelve years ago, and then they co-founded a church plant in Fort Mill, and then they returned here in 2019. And Thomas and Christopher helped produce that Queen City Dispatch. So Thomas has done a lot for the church. We're really, really grateful for it. And he reminded me he was one of my ministry school students back in 2002, and Christopher was one of his classmates. Interesting thing about Thomas, he comes from a long line of very well-known ministers and missionaries. R.A. Torrey was one of the leaders of the Moody Bible Institute with D.L. Moody. And I believe that's your great-grandfather. Am I right? Great-great-grandfather. I was looking, studying about his life. He actually studied 
under one of the preeminent German conservative Old Testament theologians, Franz Delich. I often refer to the Colin Delich commentaries, but half of it's in Hebrew, so I don't get but half of it. But anyway, Thomas comes well represented down through the ages, and um, we're so glad to have you. So, Thomas, why don't you come on up? Thank you. Thank you, Robin. Thank you. Got the headset this morning. Headset and the heavy Bible. Like an actual preacher. No, I'm not actually a preacher. I don't think I am. I don't think of myself that way. A few people mentioned preaching, and so I was a little insecure. I was like, I don't know if I'm, what I'm doing this morning will be preaching. We could define what preaching is, but I will be speaking, maybe teaching. We're going to go deep, though, this morning, because I am a storyteller. We're going to be talking about story, but I'm also a thinker, a low-key philosophizer. So I like to think a lot about things and plumb the depths of things, so we're going to be doing that this morning. Um, So this will be less of a sermon and more of a talk, but a very spiritual talk, hopefully a very formative exploration. Um, But I do say that despite some higher education in the Bible, in theology, in ministry, and a nice pedigree of ancestors in the faith, I am a lay person, merely a lay person here this morning. But again, I'm a storyteller. That's my expertise, so... I just want to set the expectation a little bit, Um, but we're going to go deep. I was invited to speak and was presented with the idea of story as sacrament. And I said, sure, I'd love to speak on story as sacrament, which you could go a lot of different ways with what that means. Um, And I almost maybe will even flip it around, sacrament as story. So I'll start by talking about what story is. As we're in the middle of this formative summer of story, we're exploring certain stories within the Bible, hopefully asking ourselves, what is my story? But I want to go real deep onto a fundamental foundational level of what story is. Then I want to talk about what sacrament is, if that's sort of a vague spiritual, religious word to you. And then I want to talk about how the two cohere and explain how our stories are sacramental and how sacrament tells a story. So we'll start with story. And if you're taking notes, you can write point one, story is meaning. Story is meaning. Um, The Bible. I brought my big heavy leather Bible because it's I want to show it to you. I want you to remember these Bibles today. They're, they're, they're this, right? Sometimes it's important to sort of remember the Bible as a book, as a volume, as a, as a defined book. It's not a book. It's a collection of books, right? It's a library, 66 books. And, and, and depending on some parts of the faith, even a few more. The Catholic Bible, for instance, has... The Apocrypha, this book has it as well. This is the new Oxford annotated, so it's a very academic Bible, a lot of great notes. Got it as a teenager. But 
we think about the Bible and, and, and Genesis 1-1, right? The, the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I've wondered if we've thought about why does the Bible begin there? That probably seems obvious. It talks about the beginning. The beginning of the story. The beginning of time. But then it goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it goes through the Old Testament into the New Testament. And it's all ordered a certain way. You ever thought about that? Why is the Bible ordered the way it is? I think we might assume, because as Christians, we are part of a faith, a story that started with the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, and continues on and has become the Christian faith. You know, once Christ came and was born and died and resurrected. But not all of the Hebrew people accepted that. They still live in the story of Judaism and the Hebrew scriptures. And so sometimes we think, well, the Bible is just a New Testament added on to the Old Testament. Actually, the Hebrew scriptures, which we might call the Old Testament, is ordered a different way. I don't know if you knew that. It's not the same order as ours. Mostly has the same books, the same content, but it's a different order. Why? Why would this be? Part of it is to maybe order it in a way that shows chronology, right? We start at the beginning, Genesis. But the Old Testament isn't even chronologically ordered. It's certainly not ordered based on the age of the manuscripts. If there's some argument over what the oldest books might be. But if we order that in order of events or the order those documents were written, irrespective of when they were referring to, we'd have a different order than what's here. I don't want to ask why. The answer is story. The early church fathers, over several hundred years, there was a lot of arguments of ordering the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the curators, these church fathers at these councils, came up with a story, and it was a story, uh, an order. And it was an order of books that was different than the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's because they were pointing towards a story. Each book has a story. Each book has stories within stories. But we know that the Bible is all adding up to a cosmic story, right? An overarching narrative. And so if that's true, if the Bible is a cosmic narrative, then it would make sense to take hundreds of years of text and order it in a way that shows its meaning, right? The Old Testament signs and metaphors carry new meaning in a New Testament context. Things like the Exodus, the the Israelites' exodus out of Egypt, and all of the signs and and metaphors that came with that, like the sacrificial lamb, had 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 a meaning in the Old Testament for the Hebrew people and now has a new meaning in the context of the New Testament of Christ. And this is the function of story. Meaning. To show what something means. Order from disorder. Story is meaning. If I am to explain to you what I mean, like what I mean as a person, not what I, what, what I mean when I say this, I mean, what do I mean? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What do I mean? 
if I'm to explain that to you, I must tell you a story. Like that's, that's the technology for me to explain meaning is through story. If I am to explain what we mean, maybe our community, our church community, my family, I must tell you a story. I don't give you a list. I don't give you a report. I tell you a story. If I am to explain what it all means, the capital it, capital all, what it all means, I must tell you a story. And to tell the story of Christ, we start when God created life itself. And then we tell the story of the Hebrew people. We look at the metaphors, the signs, the miracles. And it all adds up to something that we then experience in the New Testament. And because the metaphor takes on a new meaning, it has a deeper meaning. If something becomes a metaphor it becomes more deeply true. Maybe another title for this talk could be living metaphors, not figures of speech. When we often think about a metaphor, we think it's merely a metaphor, as if it's less true than something presented for you. A metaphor is a very important device for telling story, for showing meaning. I would say that all good stories are told through metaphor. I don't mean they just include metaphor. I mean they are metaphor. Let's tap into a little preacher here. Metaphor comes from the Greek. (laughs) To mean, that means to transfer. Meta, across. Fora, to carry. A metaphor is a concept that carries across meaning. It situates the natural, which is what is, within story, which is what that thing means. It is a higher level of meaning than naturalism or literalism. Literalism is science, very necessary, very crucial, but only able to observe what something is. Philosophy, art, they take what is and explore what does it mean. And then religion situates that meaning within a cosmic narrative. Extending the revelation of what that thing might mean into what it all means. We cannot fully know what something is until we know what it means. Our Christian faith is entirely built on metaphors. And remember, don't bristle at that as if I'm saying figures of speech. I am not. I'm saying something that... It goes to a deeper truth. Things that carry meaning beyond literalism, beyond a naturalism of what the thing is. A metaphor makes it more true because it shows what it means. So if someone says, well, God's just a story. The Bible is just a story. I would say it is a story, but it is not merely a story. 
But because it is a story, it is more true than if it was just a chronology of events. And it gives my story meaning. Genesis 1, for instance, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I happen to believe that verse is literal, where God actually is a, is, exists. Although the framework of that, I have absolutely no earthly mind to comprehend. I don't know that a human mind can comprehend something outside of space and time. But I accept God exists and I accept he created. But the truth of, you know, the seven days of creation, I don't have any tension exploring all the different ideas or theories about the generation of the physical universe. Because the fact that it could be a metaphor makes it more true. Not less true, truer on a deeper meaning. The garden, think about the garden. A place where nature, culture collide. Think about your favorite garden that you've been to, a botanical garden, your garden in your backyard. It is a collision of nature and culture, chaos and order, curated into meaning. There's the cycle of life and death within vegetation. Fruit. I say the word fruit. There's a literal idea of fruit, but then there's also a metaphorical idea of fruit. Read the Bible with an eye for garden imagery. It is all there telling a story. I mentioned a metaphor earlier. I'll say it again. The sacral, sacrificial lamb. See, when I say that phrase, I would guess most people in this room, at least if you've grown up sort of in the church... You don't think of a baby sheep. That's literalism. That's naturalism. That's a sacrificial lamb. This idea, this ritual in the Hebrew culture to slaughter a sheep, to offer it up. We think of the Christian metaphor for what that is, which is Christ has become our sacrificial lamb. In fact, we almost only think about and talk about the things of faith within metaphor. Streams of living water. I open up my heart. Just think of the songs we sing. Beautiful, poetic metaphor that reveal meaning, that show what something means. Meaning on a deeper level. I mentioned this before because it's a really easy Metaphor to talk about a cross, which is literally or naturally two pieces of wood. Metaphorically, it's our very salvation. The cross has become the symbol, the metaphor for our faith. I don't mean figuratively. I mean metaphorically. Remember the word to transfer, to carry a cross. In fact, it's only been in the last few hundred years of society, of culture, of Western thought, where we have stopped thinking in terms of story and metaphor to frame our existence. This is a very new evolution of kind of just thought and existence. For centuries, the only way cultures understood who they were as individuals, who they were as people, what it all meant, was through story, through narrative. Have you heard of the concept of the cosmic egg? 
there was an author named Joseph Chilton Pierce. He's dead. He wrote in the 40s and 50s, a theologian, but also a child psychologist. He coined this term. And he talked about the three layers of meaning in terms of story and how we think of ourselves. There's the smallest egg. I don't know why it's egg. I think it's dome-shaped. I don't think it's a very elegant kind of idea or name for the concept. But the concept's really rich to think about. The smallest sort of level of understanding is my story. Me as an individual, which for most of us, for all of us, that's really the extent of who we can know is ourselves. We all live only one life once. (laughs) So my story, what do I mean? Who am I? Where do I come from? Where am I going? My story. And it's hard to fully understand my story without the next layer out, which is our story. Who are the tribes that I'm a part of? The communities that I'm a part of? The identity groups that I might associate with? This could be family. This could be church, denomination. could be vocation. We all often have several tribal sort of eggs, groups. What is that story? Who am I? Who are we? What is my story? What is our story? And then the third is the story. What do I mean? What do we mean? What does it all mean? Often crises of faith are figuring out what story I'm a part of. What is the story? Who am I? Where is the story I've come from? Who is the story? Who's the tribe that I'm joining that story? And what does it all mean? Story is meaning. As a filmmaker, I am somewhat motivated to entertain. Somewhat. My primary motivation to create, to tell stories in the medium that I love, which is film, is to show meaning. I don't, it's not an, it's not like, you know, an intentional sort of effort. It, it is just how I'm wired to wrestle with an idea, to frame that within a plot, a story, And then to film it, to edit it, to present it. My goal is for that thing to show what something means. Whatever the thematic idea that I'm sort of exploring. To show meaning. Story is meaning. Two. These probably, these might get uh, shorter. So if I spend a good 12 minutes on that, don't worry, I won't. Get a little shorter. Um. Story is change. Story is meaning. Story is change. You cannot tell a story without telling change. A shift, a transfer, an evolution, a progression. It doesn't have to be a 180 degree change. It can be a small degree But something is not a story unless there is change. I'll show you what I mean. 
A man walks to the river. A man walks to the river. That sentence is not a story. It could be a report, you know, a chronicle. Could be an observation, an account. It could be a poem, a meditation. A man walks to the river. Poetry is different than story. That's another talk. It's not a story without change. So here's an example of that sentence, but as a story. A man walks to the river, and the river was dry. A man walks to the river and tastes water for the very first time. A man walks to the river to wash the child's blood off his hands. A man walks to the river and baptizes himself, for there was no one left on earth. Right? Those are stories. Now, a great story is longer than a sentence, but you take my point. Each one, there is some sort of change, whether it's a revelation or whether it's an actual change, change, a shift, a transfer. Which, what does transfer mean in the Greek? Metaphor. Story is change, and change is often maybe often, maybe always, death. For something to change, death has to occur on maybe even a very small molecular level. Think about garden imagery. Gardens are rich cultures of life that are equally cultures of death, right? You can't have a new season of vegetation without a season dying. We know this when we talk about the leaves. Oh, they get beautiful because they're dying. Then they fall. And then there's new life. So there's change, There's death that always happens with change. So, and, and, and to create art, which is, you know, wrestling with taking disorder, chaos, into some sort of order, Right? The order, the form, if you're a painter, there's the form of your canvas. And then there's the chaos of the process or of the elements or of just what might happen. And you're, you're dancing with order and disorder to create something. Death and life happening. That's why art is so vital. It's so necessary. And to make a thing... Often a thing might, must die first. And if you're an artist, you know this intimately. Especially if you're of the storytelling art form. The thing we make, my fellow filmmakers, give me a shout out, Blake. Anyone else in the room? The thing we make is very often not the thing we intended to make. It's changed. And death's Many deaths happen along that process. You get an idea. You're inspired. You write that down into a script where you figure out a plot, which is the literalism part, the events that happen. And hopefully that adds up to what it means. 
and you make it. The writing of it was never, you never quite got the thing you were going for. Ah, oh, so there's a death that happens. The thing I wrote is a little different. What is this new thing? Okay. Now the thing I shot and filmed, well, that's a little different than the thing I wrote. So the death has to happen. Okay. What is this thing now? I've cast actors. They're completely different than I thought. All right, let me engage with this, another death. And then you edit the thing, and it reveals to you what it is. I've gotten really good at the deaths that happen in this process. I've done it enough, and I've had enough instances where the thing that turned up was so much better than the thing I thought I wanted to make. So I don't have any... It's not depressing, usually. Sometimes. I've had many times where the thing that turned up ah, didn't quite hit it. But I'll try again. Try again next time. There's a producer, a television producer, who you know, watches from afar his show. And so he's you know, not the director. He's not writing it. But he gets an idea. Okay, this is the vision for it. They shot it. And that first episode, he'll say, when it's time to watch the first Rough cut of the first episode of a new show. All right, it's time to go see what this thing is. Because he knows what a thing is. Very rarely what we set out. And just sort of surrenders. All right, a death is about to happen. We're going to see what the thing is. This kind of idea can apply to anything we create. All the way to our kids. Let's see what the thing is. (laughs) Which takes them, you know, I don't know, sometimes 20 years to figure out who they are. We're all in the cosmic egg of stories. They each have a story. You're not in their small my story egg. You're only maybe in their second our story egg. Who shows up? Let's see what this thing is. Anything we create. And now we segue to sacrament, which is this very idea within the story of our faith. If I said story is change, story is meaning, you can replace the word story and put sacrament is change. Sacrament is meaning. We often think of these, some of these ancient religious words interchangeably. Sacrament, liturgy, ritual. They're not. Remember what I said the purpose of religion was. If, if science is what a thing is, art and philosophy is what it means, religion situates that meaning within a cosmic narrative. What it all means throughout space and time. I know as a subculture, charismatic, post-charismatic subculture, religion often can mean anti-spirit. And I, and I understand the impetus for that. But real religion is the telling of the cosmic story. It situates the tribal story and the individual story within a greater story, deeper truth. So it makes sense then to have religious practices, disciplines, 
rituals, traditions to tell that story. Let's consider the purpose of tradition and ritual for a moment. I just heard someone say something along the lines of, nobody here, someone who's sort of in a secular conversation, uh, religion's for control. Tradition and ritual, they're to control. Is it? Or you might say, oh, it, it's to exclude the Holy Spirit and have a man-led, man-led religion. Or is it to tell a story? To carry across meaning. To celebrate Christmas, for instance. Something probably most of us do. In fact, I, I would guess those of us with a genuine faith actually resent a Christmas holiday that's just about a tree or Santa Claus or presents. We crave the story, the ritual underneath. Which is to say, the participation in the story. Tradition, ritual, is a participation, an active participation in a story. The church calendar, we probably know the main highlight holidays. Christmas, Easter, Good Friday, maybe Lent. There's actually an observance, a tradition for every day of the year that the early church fathers laid out to help tell a story. The Sunday gathering, which we're all here, is an active participation in a story. This is a tradition. Now, some services look much more ritualistic than others, but they all include ritual and tradition. Because the actions we traditionalize and ritualize are the participation in the stories that we find our meaning in. And this idea of sacrament or what a sacrament is, is a religious spiritual idea, a Christian idea of a metaphor as a visceral miracle of heaven, a living metaphor. Oxford would define it as a religious act that imparts divine grace. It's not a figure of speech. It's not a symbol. There's an actual exchange, a transfer. It is the most participatory event we can experience as Christians. When a thing of earth becomes a thing of heaven. I've led communion many times over the last three years as a volunteer here at Queen City. We're going to end today with communion. And I've mentioned this many times. But not just when anything of earth becomes a thing of heaven. When a created thing. It's the very act of a creation becoming holy. Blessed. We take that thing. We lift it up to heaven and God transforms it. A living metaphor. It's an act of participation in the story of Christ in death and in life. There are many sacraments. Communion famously is traditionally one of the most well-known sacraments. Where we take bread and wine, we lift it up. 
it becomes a thing of heaven. Defining that is missing the point. It's a mysterious, cosmic sort of exchange, but it comes back to us as something life-giving. But there are many sacraments. Marriage, healing. We can lift up ourselves. I would say anything that is created has sacramental potential. You can lift up any created thing and say, God, make this a living metaphor. Make this go from what it is to something deeper, what it means. Give it back to me and let me share it with the earth and have it be something that is life-giving. I said a prayer. I wrote in my journal. I just reread my journal from the fall, right before I started production on the film that I'm finishing, that Robin mentioned. And I said, Lord, make this film a sacrament. Here's the thing I am creating, I'm going to make. The work of my hands. I lift it up to you. Lord, touch it, transform it, give it back, and let me share it with the earth and have it be something life-giving. If you're a maker of any kind, do that. You can lift up the work of your hands and just say, let this become something more than what it is. Let it have some deeper meaning. Let it be a living metaphor. Bless it, transform it from a thing of earth into a thing of heaven. The created thing metamorphosizes and metaphorosizes. <laughs> New meaning defines it. Who are you? What do you mean? What story are you a part of? What does that story mean? What are the metaphors, the signs, the rituals, the sacraments of that story which carry across meaning? What does it all mean? To be a Christian, a Christian, (laughs) means we look to Christ for that meaning. And we're going to end with a participation in that through the sacrament of communion. There's a participation in the story that we can do right here as often as we want. So, I'm going to shift into that and lead us in this this sacrament. Before we do that, we'll do another sacrament where we lift up ourselves. Do you know you can do that? We didn't create ourselves, but we are a created thing. We can lift up ourselves and say, God, make me holy. That's called the sacrament of reconciliation. If you're an ancient church person, it's confession. It's forgiveness. It's a miracle where A created thing that is living in the fall that sins and wanders and strays daily, hourly, can actually be reconciled, can become something holy now, not when we die. So let's close our eyes and just take a minute and lift up ourselves. 
and think about where we have fallen short, not as a means of feeling guilt. Hopefully it's the opposite, to feel true freedom. Lord, we confess to Almighty God before the whole company of heaven and to you, our brothers and sisters, that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. And it's, and it's our own fault. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness. We ask for that miracle of reconciliation. We lift up ourselves as a sacrament, as a living metaphor. And we ask for that miraculous transfer to become new, forgiven, please. Absolutely. I, before, I didn't know Thomas was going to do what he just did, and I'm grateful for it. I was feeling that very thing that we could offer. I actually thought, Lord, I've done this 12 years. I've been in this church 12 years. I want to lift this church up Mm. as a sacrament. And I just, I just, I felt like the Lord would really particularly honor that. Mm. If we would do that together, if we could just stand together as um, a congregation, warts and all, problems and all, and offer ourselves as a whole to the Lord. And then I'll turn this back to Thomas. I appreciate this so much. But, Father, we do. Yeah. What is Thomas was um, talking about how we bring something you give us back to you and we ask your blessing on it we ask that you you sanctify it you do the thing with it you want to that you continue and create the history that you want it to have the story you want to tell mm. through this corporate expression of your body, this part. So, Father, we ask, and this morning we present to you, I present to you, Queen City Church, all that that means, all that that is. We ask for your blessing on it, Lord. We ask for your manifest presence, that tangible See, the presence is touching us now, ladies and gentlemen, that the Lord is here to receive what we're offering him. He's paying close attention to hearts and lives. And so we offer this to you, Lord. We ask that your blessing, your name, your presence, your gifts, your characters, all the aspects of both who you are and what you do, would dwell here, manifest here, touch lives, go out from here. In Jesus' name. Amen. Mm.
There's some beautiful poetry written that can accompany this that helps tell this story. This water is poured into this cup, the chalice of salvation, recalling the water which flowed from the side of the Son of God. May the mingling of this water and wine, which are now inseparable, remind us that Christ is being joined to our humanity and our humanity is being joined to his deity, never to be separated. Look at that metaphor where I just mixed water and wine and the mingling of this water and wine, which are now inseparable, reminds us that Christ is being joined to our humanity and our humanity is being joined to his deity never to be separated. If you've got an element, you can go ahead and take the bread. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread in his hands and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said something new that day. He was celebrating a ritual within their culture. It was Passover. Breaking of bread was a common thing. But then he said, Take this, eat this, for this is my body. Broken for you. He's saying, participate in my story. Do this as a remembrance for me. The body of Christ, the bread of heaven. And after they had eaten, he took the cup and he said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. Shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this living metaphor as a remembrance for me. The blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. And there's a beautiful prayer that I grew up saying before we would take communion during, after, it's okay. God's outside of space and time. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Happy are those who were called to his banqueting table. And as a church, we would all say, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. And he has said the word. It's on a perpetual, endless loop. Come and receive. Participate in my story. So Lord, as we go forth in this week, let us be participants in the story of us, the story of our tribes, and the story of it all, the story of you. Amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.